The Perfect Ten. With Steve Allen, voice of the NRL and six-time Radio Award winner. Yeah, welcome. Episode 38 of The Perfect Ten, proudly brought to you by Robson Civil Projects. Our next guest coming up in a few moments is Dan Ryan, Premiership winning coach with the West Coast Fever. They won the title for the first time in their history against the Melbourne Vixens. But what makes Dan's story unique is he spent time at the Adelaide Thunderbirds and can you believe he lost 27 games in a row? Lost his job, went to the UK, used his own savings by the way, and scored a job with the Leeds Rhinos. Couple of years later, he goes through an exhaustive interview process, lands the job at the West Coast Fever alongside Sue Gordian. Janelle Fowler is there. She's the world's best goal shooter. The Jamaican has rewritten the record books in the last couple of years, and they create history by winning the first ever title for the West Coast Fever. I love a good redemption story. One of my favourite movies is Cinderella Man starring Russell Crowe and it's the story of James J. Braddock, the heavyweight champion of the world who was written off back in the 1930s. So any story where someone's told they can't do something and then they achieve greatness, I'm on board 110%. We'll go live to Dan in WA in just a few moments. The podcast, as always, brought to you by Robson Civil Projects and lately they've been posting on their Instagram page some black and white nostalgic photos. And one that I really love is from 1950. So this is back when Ron Robson first started the business in Gosford. Eventually, his son Peter takes over. He's now chairman of the board. Peter's son Grant is managing director these days. Grant's brother Mark is executive director and manages the workshop. And there's Robson family members all the way through the business. So obviously, family values are the core of Robson Civil Projects. And with family values comes respect, recognition, and support for all of their employees and also their families. So if Robson Civil Projects sounds like the kind of place you'd like to work in the future, check out the website, click on their employee portal and take it from there. And you never know, you could be working for a third generation business in years to come. Okay, just before we get to Dan, let's quickly listen to the final moments of a riveting grand final, West Coast Fever, up against the Melbourne Vixens in the Suncorp Super Netball Grand Final. Dan Ryan is on the brink of tears, the emotion. Four seconds. The final shot, but little too late. It is fever pitch here at RAC Arena in Perth as they take their first premiership in 25 years. What a grand final and commentary from one of my dear friends, Catherine Cox, an absolute legend of the game and courtesy of Fox Sports and also KO. Okay, let's get to Dan Ryan, a premiership winning coach in 2022. I think you'll love this episode. Dan Ryan, welcome to The Perfect Ten. Thanks for having me, mate. Looking forward to having a chat today. Yeah, absolutely. And congratulations again on just an incredible season and the grand final win against the Vixens, 70-59. to Your team, virtually perfect, although I'd like to get your thoughts as a head coach. What a day for you guys. It must seem surreal. Yeah, it really does, to be honest, mate. I think it's, you know, we're a couple of weeks on now and it's it's slowly sinking in, but you still always get those moments where you get a flashback thinking, did this really happen? Is this real? So... It's been quite a special time for, for all of us involved. And I think probably, you know, what stand, stood out to me so much over the past few weeks is how far reaching the, the win has actually been. And I moved house the other day and the two middle-aged men who were the removalists come and <laughs> gave me a big hug. They knew exactly what had happened. Uh, the barista in the coffee shop, the old lady crossing the street at the supermarket. It's just touched so many people, which I think is um, the really special part about winning a premiership and obviously the club's first in its 25-year history. So, yeah, a really special time, mate, and, and everyone's really celebrating and, and enjoying it as they should. Yeah, yeah. How was the media coverage in WA? So we're talking AFL Heartland. Were you front and back page of the paper? Yeah, it was terrific coverage. And, you know, the week leading up to the grand final, there was something in the paper and on the news every single night and uh, posts that it lasted for probably about seven to 10 days of extensive coverage. And, you know, we had a, a parade in the city centre by, hosted by the city of Perth and we presented a, a special shield um, into the into the um, from the city of Perth as well. So 
just so many great um, elements that have come from it and the coverage has been exceptional as it always is here in the West. The, the West Australian newspaper in particular do a great job supporting the team. So, yeah, very special time. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the podcast. I kind of really want to delve into where your love of coaching began and whether you went on some kind of pilgrimage, whether you had mentors. Also want to find out about you as a player because you're an absolute superstar, a captain of the Australian team. Just on the grand final, though, so through the season, Vixens get you twice in the home and away rounds, but then you beat them in the major semi. And I think the scoreline's 71-62. Is that where finally you've got the belief that you can get the job done? Yeah, I think it was a really significant win, to be honest, in a number of different ways. But going into that game, um, I knew that we were capable of a performance like that, and I knew that we were building towards that. So I made re- made it really clear with the playing group that um, whilst we lost twice to the Vixens in the home and away season, and then a third time, including pre-season cup grand final, we never really gave, gave ourselves a, a good showing in those two performances. Vixens played very well both times, and we were very competitive, but we were nowhere near our ceiling or our potential, which we took a lot of positivity from and a lot of hope and a lot of excitement knowing that when it comes together we're going to be a very different outfit and um, there was a real quiet confidence going into that major semi-final that things were coming together at the right time and that we really had ourselves in a fantastic position to strike the Vixens in that semi-final. I feel like when you go into a game like that and you haven't beaten the opposition and you know you haven't played well when you've lost to them it just gives you this little quiet confidence inside to know that now's our time. And the way we performed in that first 15 minutes of the first quarter of that semi-final was, I think, a significant moment for everybody in the team on, off the court, going, this is what we've been working for and this is the quality that we can produce. So it was quite a pivotal moment and uh, certainly the catalyst for, I think, the unbreakable belief that stayed within the group all the way until the end of the grand final. Yeah, Dan, I want to talk more about the grand final and I've got a thousand questions about that process and some of your star players, but let's unpack your netball history because you fall in love with this game from a very young age. Can can you tell us more about that? Yeah, my mum played a lot of netball when she was younger and I've got three brothers and it was a sport that we're all introduced to pretty early on as young kids and I started playing the game as an eight-year-old and I can remember from the age of around five, six, seven, sitting on the side of a court watching mum play and it was just something that I gravitated towards really quickly and as I said, played my first game by the age of eight and um, loved it and obviously when I turned 12, you couldn't keep playing netball anymore but I was as a boy and I was really fortunate that the, the Cry Netball Association where I was playing down in Geelong created their first ever mixed league so I could actually keep playing. So... Um, I was really fortunate that I was able to continue along playing netball and a couple of years later made the Victorian team as a 14-year-old. So, um, yeah, it's just been something I think that's always been a huge passion of my life. And just one of those things I think as a young kid that you get really passionate about, really invested in to the point of obsession at times. And um, netball was that sport for me. And obviously, you know, I'm very close with my mum and it's a very special thing that we share together. And um Yeah, certainly been a huge part of my life, but started all the way back as an eight-year-old kid. Yeah, amazing. And what about your brothers? Did they play too? Yeah, we all played at different stages. My oldest brother was was very good, actually, and he was um, invited, actually, to try out for Victoria and had no interest. So I kind of went (laughs) along in his place when I saw the flyer. And um, my second oldest brother, Tim, has a great story around when we played uh, in the same team. You could only have one boy on the court at a time. And he he, he recalls a story in a grand final where – I told the coach to get him off the court so I could get back on. Um, <laughs> we, we ended up winning the grand final, so it was a very smart move, but um, yeah. no, he never lets me live that one down. And my youngest brother, Mark, he he was basically my training partner in the backyard. I would I would pay him 50 cents for a, a one-on-one battle, and uh, first to 15, I'd give him a 13-nil head start, um, and I'd still keep him at the post. But uh, very special memories with my brothers and, and their involvement in the game and the part they've played in my journey as well. Yeah, great stories. And I, I tried to find some footage today of you in action. I mean, have you got grainy old video cassettes? Um... <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> yeah, I've got a lot of a lot of VHSs and still a lot on um, on mini mini HD tape recorders and those types of things. But I stopped playing around 2013, I think was my last year playing at the elite level. And probably the years after that is when they started to stream national championships. And now there's great coverage of of the men's national championships and international games, which is fantastic. So it's just incredible to see where the men's game has come from compared to when we were playing and, and what coverage and, and 
visibility we used to get. So it's a really exciting growth that's happening in our sport. And um, yeah, certainly got lots of boxes made of, of the old VHS tapes of me running around a court, but can't say that I've watched them any time yeah. recently. It, it's amazing. You said you made the Victorian team as a 14-year-old. Yeah, so the under-19s and um, one of the youngest to, to make it. And there's a few that have, have gone on to, to do that in, in recent years as well, which is brilliant. And, um, yeah, went on playing in the Open team, I think, when I was about 17 or 18. So progressed through the pathway pretty quickly. Um, but was just so lucky that I was captured in the under-19s so young because around that 12, 13, 14, 15 age group is where a lot of young boys that love the game get lost to the game because there's no pathway. And now I think men's netball and there's a lot happening within the state bodies in uh, the organisations to ensure there's sustainable pathways for, for boys to move into the men's game, which I think is fantastic. And um, just really lucky that my association back in Geelong created a mixed comp so I could actually stay in the game because... Yeah, I would have been devastated if I had nowhere to play, that's for sure. Yeah, with netball in Victoria, virtually every club is associated with an AFL club. Is that correct? Uh, in some ways. I think there's, there's a huge link between football and netball in Victoria and the, the, the country footy leagues do a brilliant job with linking the two codes. And I think as you move up through the pathway, there's a real um, synergy between the cross codes and how they can support each other. And I, I think it's great that sports do that. And I think... You know, netball can teach a lot of sports other things, and I think other codes can really support netball as well. So um, I think those partnerships have been really critical in, in building the game and making it more sustainable. I mean, tell us about representing Australia in the sport that you love and pulling on that green and gold. And who were your opponents? Well, that was my dream as a kid. My dream was to, I had two dreams as a young eight year old boy it was to captain the Australian men's netball team. and be a sports commentator at the Olympics. Can't say that I've done that just yet, but um, no, certainly being able to live the dream of representing my country in netball was something I'll never forget. And, you know, spent a good 15 years there playing in the Australian team and um, some of the best memories, some of the best friends I've ever made and, and still to this day. And, you know, there's nothing like standing on the side of a court, hearing the national anthem and then competing against New Zealand, who were obviously our, our arch rivals. And, um, you know, just, just wonderful, wonderful memories of... Um, you know, brilliant experiences and moments in my life that I'll never forget. Hey, Dan, for our listeners, where did you play? Were you a centre? I was a goal attack, actually. It was um, quite interesting that you know, I was quite short and small compared to all the other guys running around. And um, I remember when I was first selected in the Victorian team at 14, the selectors had told my mum that I would never play uh, in the open ranks of Victoria or Australia as a shooter because I was too small and that I'd have to move into the midcourt one day. And um, I basically only spent one tournament really playing wing attack. I played a little bit as my career went on. But, um, yeah, throughout my whole 15-year career, very much locked into the goal attack role and that both nationally and, and for Victoria as well. So, um, yeah, always one of those things. Don't tell someone what they can't do. Let them show you what, show you what they can do um, and beware of the small goal attack, that's for sure. How many caps do you end up, uh, like how many times do you represent Australia? Yeah, I think I worked it out to be around in the 50s or 60s. I'm not 100% sure, but we probably only play anywhere between three tests a year or every second year. So there weren't a huge amount of opportunities to play internationally. And obviously it's all self-funded. So there was no no government funding, no real sponsorship at all. So we would be handing over anywhere between ten dollars to $12,000 a year just to compete. That's both representing Victoria to national championships and then internationally for Australia as well. So it was quite costly and, um, you know, difficult for – I obviously relied on my parents during a lot of those early times to support me in doing that and um, not an easy task. But, uh, yeah, it, there weren't huge amount of opportunities to play internationally and, you know, I think we're, we're probably still now post-pandemic getting back into the stage where there's going to be some great opportunities for our Australian men's netballs in, in the coming month, month. So, um yeah, always cherished every cap, but yeah, there certainly weren't as many as what I would have loved to, that's for sure. Hey, Dan, uh, you mentioned commentary. Let's hope you're in the box in 2032 in Brisbane at our home Olympic Games. That will be absolutely amazing. During this period when you're playing for Australia, is there some kind of burning desire around this time to become a coach? Yeah, coaching was a really interesting starting point. I think I first started coaching when I was around 15, just in high school, um, as a bit of a, a, a casual job to make a bit of income. I reckon I applied for a job at Hungry Jacks and didn't get it. And so the last resort was to turn to coaching. So I just remember coaching a year seven and year eight girls team just around the corner from my high school and did that 
two nights a week after a school for an hour and then they'd play on a Friday night. And um, that's where it all really started. And then my first kind of, I guess, taste into it where I started to get a real interest in it was when I joined uh, the Geelong District Netball Football League coaching Karai Devils. And um, that, I think, is where the passion started to really think about coaching as something that I did love to do. But to be honest, I only saw it as a hobby up until about 2012 when I was offered an opportunity to jump into the high-performance space at the Adelaide Thunderbirds as an assistant coach. And at that time, there were no male male head coaches professionally, and I didn't really see the pathway or the opening. Um, but once Rob Wright got appointed at the Swifts, I think in 2014, a lot of my thinking shifted. And you know, I thought, if he could, I can. And that kind of sparked the the interest in coaching becoming something that could potentially become a career path for me. When you talk about playing netball as a young boy, I mean, we're in a different society now and we kind of embrace every kind of pathway, but was that tough back then as a young boy playing netball? Yeah, it was because it was so different and I was very much in the minority. None of my friends at school that were boys were playing netball or none of my classmates or anything like that were playing. So I always stood out as being a little bit different, but and, you know, you'd get a bit of flack for it as well, uh, like a lot of kids do through primary school and the start of high school. However, I was really headstrong and I thought, I always thought, if you love what you do, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about it. And I just loved playing netball. I loved the game. I knew so much about it. I was so invested in it that I was never going to let someone's comment or someone's disapproval be the thing that stopped me from doing what I love. And it, it should never. So... Um, it certainly was tough, but I think now, you know, you look at society these days and it's far more open-minded, it's far more inclusive, we're far more diverse. And, you know, I certainly hope that, um, you know, the perception of boys or men playing netball has shifted dramatically. Um, but like I said, at the end of the day, if you love what you do, it doesn't really matter at all what anyone else thinks about it. As long as you're enjoying it, that's what matters most. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Obviously, I've got a question here about glass ceiling and it sounds like Rob Wright is the man that smashed that down and you followed. Yeah, I think it was, um, you know, we've had a few before Rob as well, the likes of John Fletcher that have, that have had head coaching jobs in Commonwealth Bank Trophy and state teams and things like that. But I think in the real professional era, Rob was definitely the first and, you know, he did the hard yards going through the pathway system and a lot of years as an assistant coach. And when he finally got that opportunity to head coach at the Swifts, it really was a light bulb moment for me to think, well, if I stay the course and if I continue on my journey, if Rob can do it, I can do it too. And at the time I was working full-time at Sky News as a sports reporter and presenter. And once Rob had got the job, something straight away switched in me around wanting to pursue coaching as the career and then putting my media space um, to more of a hobby. So um, I owe a lot to, to Rob and his journey and in, in the impact it had on me. And I'm, I'm sure he's aware of that in some capacity, but probably very unaware in other spaces about that as well. But yeah, he was certainly a pioneer in our game and, um, yeah, glad to have been able to follow suit and, and make a really sustainable living out of being a coach now. Yeah, so how do you end up in Adelaide? Yeah, so Jane Woodlands-Thompson was obviously the head coach of the Adelaide Thunderbirds at the time in from during the ANZ Championship era. And Marg Angove, her mum, was my Australian men's coach. And so I met Jane a few times through Marg and our Victorian men's team and Australian team used to go to Adelaide and play against the Thunderbirds in pre-season matches and formed a strong friendship there with Jane. And just out of the blue after winning national championships one day, we were messaging back and forward. And um, I just let her know that the boys had won. And she just asked me if I'd be interested in coming over to Adelaide and becoming one of the assistant coaches of the Thunderbirds for 2012. And um, I was starting to get an interest in coaching at that level at that time. And I was working in state league back in Victoria and uh, still working for Channel 10, doing some netball commentary and, and got approval from my bosses, I guess, to be able to do both and made the move over to Adelaide and, and jumped in as the assistant coach from 2012 onwards and spent four years there. So it was very much a um, an out of the blue opportunity that popped up, but one that was too good to pass up. And certainly I sit here today having one with fever, knowing that I would not be here today right now had Jane Woodlands-Thompson not identified something in me and provided me with a platform and an opportunity. So she's been one of the most influential figures in my career, one of my most loyal friends and critical friends, but just a great mentor. And it just goes to show that along the journey that, you know, you need people on your side that back you in and give you those chances. And and Jane was a pivotal factor in, in my development. Yeah, and she's a legend of the game, no doubt about that. 
Yeah, she is. And, you know, we're in touch all the time still. And, you know, she's really exploring her horizons in what she can do in the game and outside of the game. And she's just a brilliant operator and, yeah, someone that I'll always be very deeply connected to because of our past together and and also, you know, how much I guess we've supported each other respectively along the way. Isn't it massive when you go from assistant coach to head coach? You know, they talk about a lot where we are in the National Rugby League that you can be an assistant for your entire career and, and really there's maybe a lack of pressure, particularly when you look at the, the head coaching role and, you know, it's a brutal environment, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And I think, you know, one of the biggest myths in elite sport is that the assistant coach role prepares you for the head coach role. And I think that is 100% incorrect. I think it gives you as an assistant coach a good insight into how things work, but because you're not accountable or responsible for the entire operation or you're not having to make the difficult decisions or have the hard conversations or manage the workload or be responsible for boards and upper management and all those types of things, it doesn't necessarily give you the grounding that you need to be able to be prepared for what the head coach job throws at you. And I think the best way to prepare to be a head coach is just to head coach and to win and lose and succeed and fail and thrive and struggle and experience all the different complexities of what head coaching can bring because the assistant coach chair won't necessarily prepare you for that. So two very different jobs, two very important jobs, but uh, very different in terms of what they consume and, and the complexities of them. Hey, Dan, Barack Obama at his inauguration, I'm sure you probably saw it, but he said there's nothing so satisfying to the spirit, so defining of our character than giving our all to a difficult task. Now, that's certainly what you did in Adelaide during two just incredibly tough years. And there's a lot of talk that you're a scapegoat, uh, netball South Australia, I think they went through five coaches in a really quick period, in quick succession. Not enough finances into the program, but if we're talking about defining of character, you've even said that that period defines you as a coach. Yeah, it's a great quote, actually. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, I've obviously reflected a lot and spoken a lot about my experience in Adelaide. And, you know, I can sit here hand on heart and say that while it was the most challenging and confronting and difficult period of my life, it was the best thing that has ever happened to me because of what it taught me and how it made me grow and evolve and learn very quickly. And I think what I experienced in those two years there as a head coach is what a lot of coaches would experience across the course of their entire career. So for me to have that experience at the very start of my head coaching high-performance career in Australia and to be where I am now, the two are so connected based on my learnings and development and the growth and wisdom that's come from those experiences. And, you know, at the end of the day, you have to be really honest with yourself. And and I always, you know, upon reflection now, I'm like, I wasn't ready for that head coaching job at that time. And the club itself certainly wasn't ready to be supporting a rookie head coach. And so wrong place, wrong time mentality is is how I've kind of come to peace with that experience. But also, a huge amount of gratitude and thanks that that was my first experience, that it was so hard and so tough, so many things against us, so many different struggles, so many different challenges. But to be in that space and on survival mode, essentially, not just me, but a lot of us, uh, the business included, to be in that space for two years, I think they're, they're the spaces that you need to sit in and be really uncomfortable in knowing that they're going to be the greatest catalyst for growth, change, evolution, development that you'll ever experience as long as you can look at it in perspective, which I think is what I managed to do. And um, I know a lot of people have commented on how well I handled the situation and how difficult it was. And I'm certainly proud of that, but it, it really was two years of just trying to keep your head above water Um and I think probably what I'm most proud of is that I continued to coach afterwards, that I didn't let that be the moment that that defined me as such. It, I was really determined once it was over to ensure that that experience was going to be the start of me, not the end of me, and that those two years had to be worth something. And I wouldn't be sitting here today had I not had the struggle and the hardship of those two years at Adelaide because they were the best training ground and the best space of learning and development for me that I could ever possibly have hoped for. And while at the time it was tough, um, it's it's what you do with it that's most important. And um, 
Yeah, Thunderbirds will always hold a very special place in my heart. Four years as the assistant coach, great success. Two years as the head coach, lots of struggle, but just so grateful that those experiences have helped me along the way and made a massive impact on on who I am as a coach and person today. They always say that to win a premiership, the head offers. I mean, it starts from there down. Were there any warning signs or red flags for you at all through that period where you thought, uh, this is maybe not the best scenario for me to be in? It was really difficult because I didn't know. I didn't, you don't know what you don't know. So I went in there, obviously, I was only 32 at the time and um, had just come back from a really successful stint in the UK, coaching Manchester Thunder, got to the grand final, was doing some work with England. So everything was really positive coming into it. And actually, you know, I'm a bit of an eternal optimist, a little bit more of a realist now, but I went into, I went, in, went into that job thinking I could I could change this, I could get this back on track. But once you start to figure out um, that, you know, financially you're under a bit of pressure without great budgets to be able to properly prepare a team, we spent a lot of time, almost, almost the majority of the time, without a high-performance manager, to be honest, particularly in that first year. So we didn't have the support or resourcing or infrastructure that we needed to be truly high performance. However, at the time I knew no different. I just thought the job was really bloody hard and that you were all consumed by it 24 seven with no respite. And I guess for me too, I didn't have a a great net, a social network or family in Adelaide. I was there pretty much alone for most of it, which was a bit of a struggle, but um, I think it was just one of those things that, you got through it, and then when you experience different environments and they're so different, you're like, oh, if only I had that, if only I had this, if only we could do that or do this. So, um, you know, while the organisation, I think, was was struggling a little bit because I didn't have a huge amount of industry knowledge in that space, it was very hard to compare to anything else. So, um, but having said that now upon reflection, to win and to be successful everything needs to be thriving. Everything needs to be high performance. That's board, upper management, resourcing, infrastructure, your staff, your playing group, your training partners, your sponsors. Everything needs to be connected and working together to achieve the ultimate success. You can't do one without the other at the top level. So um, huge learnings around that space of how the business works and what you actually need to be high performance and, and, and stay at the top. But as I said, it's yeah, I went in there probably a little bit blind, not knowing any difference. So it to me, it just was what it was, I guess. I'm trying to find a positive here. So I looked at some of the results from the seasons that you coached. And even though you had a long run of losses, you had some games against some powerhouse clubs where you only lose by two goals. You lose against the Swifts a couple of times by two goals. They're a championship winning team. You lose against the Giants by two. You lose against Collingwood by two. So... You just can't quite get over the line and you're super competitive against the Lightning who also won a championship through that period. So in some ways, you've had some of your finest coaching performances without getting the win. Yeah, I think that the two seasons were very different. Our, our team in 2017 was a bit more of a experienced team, but from all over the world and the country. So it was a little bit disjointed and we just didn't really have the time to get the team connected as we would have liked. So that was tough. And we we're also up against teams that were probably a little bit more established than what we were. Then in the second year, we made a lot of changes to try and, I guess, start a, a rebuild and have a bit of a light at the end, at end of the tunnel mentality that the team was heading in the right direction. And we put a lot of investment into to young emerging youth there with a few experienced players. But because we were so, uh, so raw and so new as a team and you had all these other teams that were well established and years ahead of us it was really difficult to to compete on on a level playing field with them so I think my biggest take out of those two years though is how important it is as a coach to respect winning and losing equally and to have a really healthy relationship with both and I think when you look at my story where you've lost 27 losses in a row you just imagine what that's like as a coach to have to pick a team up after every single game, reshape the mentality at the start of the training week, try and motivate them to believe that they can go again the following week. The energy it takes to do that again and again and again for 27 consecutive games is a lot. But I just think it's such an important space to be in to learn because if you don't know how to 
accept losing at the top level or if you don't know how to handle losing or see losing for how much it can give you if you're willing to dive deep into it, you miss a really important part of what sport is really about. So I think what those experiences gave me, like I said, is a really deep respect for winning and losing equally. And I think to one thing here I did at Fever um, this year is to ensure that we really enjoyed every single win that we had because it's so easy to quickly move on and dismiss it as, oh, yeah, another win in the bag, all good. But to actually appreciate how hard it is to win a match in this competition is so important because the alternative is quite grim. So I've got a very healthy relationship with winning. Enjoy it. Stay in the moment. And with losing, no worries. Let's pick out what we can learn and let that be the catalyst for what we do as we respond the next week. So tough experience, but so much, so much learnings that have come from that. That's for sure. How about for you personally? Were there times where you had a little bit of self-doubt or do you still always believe that your coaching philosophies will be successful? Yeah, good question. I, I think certainly doubt crept in every now and then, but I think for me it was probably the handling the the pressure of it more than anything else when you're on survival mode. So you never felt on top of things. You never felt like things were going well. There was always a spot fire to put out. There was always a challenge here or a struggle here. It was always just very, very difficult. And I think probably I spent a lot of the time, to be honest, in shock that this was what the experience was. This was meant to be me living my dream, coaching at the top level, and it was nothing but a nightmare. And I'm like, this is not worth it. This is not how... I want to be living my life. There's no joy here. There's no fun here. This is just stressful. I'm Mm. ridden with anxiety. It was really, really difficult. But I also knew that not every environment was like that or every experience was like that. So once you're able to step away from it and put it in perspective, you you get a better better holistic picture of the situation. But, um, yeah, I think all coaches struggle with a bit of self-doubt. And I think probably for me most of that, most of that struggle really hit in when I finished up at Adelaide and that, that 12 months afterwards is probably where it was most difficult for me because the aftermath is probably more difficult than when you're in at the coal face of the fire, I guess. So yeah, very, very tough times, but I think, you know, very important to, to experience that type of, that type of hardship. Yeah, Dan, we can uh, take a deep breath now because uh, I think that's most of the negativity out of the way. Now you move to the UK, and is it true you go there for just $5,000 or £5,000 because you want to step straight back into the coaching environment? Not quite. I I go there with $5,000 of my own savings (laughs) to to basically keep me afloat. So Mm. it was a really interesting time because after... After I finished up my contract at Adelaide, I quickly moved back home and moved back in with my mum for about four months. And during that time, I was just figuring out what I was going to be doing next. And I was adamant that I firstly had to keep coaching and wanted to keep coaching. I think if I didn't keep coaching straight away, I could have easily very much been lost because no one was really picking up the phone going, hey, are you okay? What about this job? What about that job? You're very much left to your own devices. So lucky for me, I'm pretty persistent and resilient and kind of, you know, created my own opportunities, I guess, and was going through the process of applying for the head coach job at Northern Ireland, thinking it would be a great opportunity to coach at the World Cup, coach internationally, have an experience like that, and was successful in that appointment. But the job itself um, was not full-time, not part-time, very much a casual contract. So it didn't pay a salary as such that could actually see me move over to the UK. It just wasn't going to be sustainable. But as I got the job and was kind of talking through what our options were with Northern Ireland, my old club, Manchester Thunder, approached me about being an assistant coach. And so they were able to offer me a bit of income, which allowed me to then be able to relocate to the UK. Because if they didn't come to the party, I would have either had to fly in and out to Northern Ireland for camps or not be able to do it essentially. Um, but because Thunder come in, I had two two little casual jobs going that were enough to get me by. And then obviously I had to pack some of my savings with me and, and had five grand in my bank account just to dip into whenever I needed it. And basically after that first 12 months from leaving Adelaide to the end of that World Cup period, um, that five grand became my safety blanket because everything I was earning was basically going straight back out to expenses uh, with a little bit of disposable income here and there. But um, certainly went from a major pay cut from being a professional coach in Australia to then 
um, two casual jobs initially uh, over that 12-month period before, you know, before then things turned post-World Cup. Northern Ireland extended my contract. They got sponsorship to turn my job into a part-time position. And then Leeds Rhinos approached me around coming on board as their head coach as well. So it was a huge roll of the dice that I took in going back to the UK. I knew that it would be tough financially, but for me, it was always about the opportunity. And I think that's why I'm so grateful to my time in the UK because, you know, Karen Rollo at Northern Ireland and Debbie Hallis at Manchester Thunder, both incredible supporters of my journey and the opportunities they provided me to keep coaching more than anything. And, you know, that three-year block I was in the UK, great success, great opportunities, really diverse experiences too, which broadened my skill set. Um, but certainly a very tough 12, 12 months after Adelaide, but uh, uh, landed on my feet pretty quick after that, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And what's the standard like in the UK? We know what the English superstars are like, and they'll be one of our main rivals at the Commonwealth Games. But what's their domestic competition like? Yeah, it's really grown. It's a, it's a great domestic competition, to be honest. It's definitely the, the third best in the world behind Australia, New Zealand and, Eng- uh, and England sitting in third, obviously, with their competition. And a great platform to refine your craft as a coach, great international talent there from all different countries of the world, um, and really, a, a, to be honest, a great platform for the next tier of competition in New Zealand and Australia. And, you know, they're really trying to professionalise the league over there and they're making some great inroads and Sky Sports, great supporters of it. So I've loved my time in the UK and it's certainly been um, a huge catalyst for my growth and um, had some really great people support me in my journey along there. And, you know, certainly a great place to go and, and, and do what you love to do. So are Leeds affiliated with the famous rugby league club as well? Yeah, they are. So Leeds Rhinos Netball got a, a license to enter the Super League, very similar to like a, a Collingwood setup or a Giant setup over here in Australia. And the rugby club fully backed and supported the netball program. And, and my job was to basically build the netball program from the ground up and recruit the team and the staffing from scratch and build a playing style and a team and um, all those types of things. So um, it was a great experience and one of the most unique experiences I've ever had. And uh Certainly one of one of the highlights of my career, that, that two-year two period there for sure. Yeah, and how in that period do you evolve as a coach? And then tell us more about how the West Coast Fever job comes on the radar for you. Yeah, I think the, the Leeds Rhinos job for me was probably the first time since moving back to the UK in post-Adelaide where I was able to, for the first time, put everything that I'd learnt and gained and developed over the last, say, three to five years into practice. And... I think what was so unique around Leeds Rhinos is that it was a blank canvas. They never had a team. It was the inaugural team. So what we built was going to be authentically ours from a playing style, a culture, all of those types of things. So it was really special to be able to build that and to be able to, I think, just put my own mark on it with the influence of all the players and the staff and really create a united front. And this is our team and what we contribute is really important. And I love that project. It was one of the most fulfilling experiences of my life. And um, it was also a team that I recruited with a philosophy of providing opportunities to those that really needed them. And, you know, there was a few players, I think, that had been discarded early in the English pathway that I recruited and, you know, saw them get back into the England program and those types of things. So it was a really special year for all of us. And we had Danelle Wallam from um, Australia now playing with the Queensland Firebirds come over and have her first taste of high-performance netball. And she blew the competition away. And, to make finals in our first year, I think, was something that we're all really proud of and um, lots of challenges throughout the season. But, uh, yeah, incredibly proud of what we achieved there and it was, you know, an incredible experience in a number of different ways. Hey, Dan, I've watched you on some videos where you talk about teams and culture. So you really step through chemistry and also dynamics and there's been a lot of studies done. Like, you can bring into a successful team, you can bring one person that's the wrong fit and it can really upset the group. I mean, is this something that you've studied and you've obviously at the West Coast Fever, you've absolutely nailed it with your group? Yeah, that's my passion area with coaching. I think all, all head coaches are different in terms of, I guess, their area they gravitate towards towards first and foremost. Some will be the game plan, others the statistics, all of those types of things. And while I love all those elements of it, for me, what I get a real kick out is is the team dynamics, the chemistry, the culture, the relationships, the engagement, the communication, all of those types of things. Because I think the way you feel about yourself and the way you feel about others is what's most important in a team setting because essentially you can't do it without your teammates. And so 
the way that the team operates from a dynamic perspective, how deeply connected the relationships are, how well respectful they are, how well you know each other's stories, how well you have great compassion and empathy for each other, and how how deep you're willing to dive for each other, particularly under pressure, I think are some of the most important elements to successful teams. And, um, you know, it's an area that's, that, that takes a lot of time to get right and it's very consuming. Uh, but certainly in my coaching, it's an area that I certainly prioritise as, as one of the key factors to being successful because you can have a team of good players and have a great culture and your team becomes great or you can have a team of great players with a really poor culture and your team never fulfills its potential. So um, culture is critical. Dynamics, critically important. Um, and, you know, there's nothing more fascinating than human behavior. That's for sure. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoy that space. And it's certainly something that I spend a lot of time refining and, and diving into with my groups. Yeah. I'm reading a book on culture at the moment and 85% of managers say that culture is important, but a lot of them don't really understand what drives culture. And some of them think that it's organic, that it just happens magically. Just tell me, when the West Coast Fever job comes on the radar, what do you think gets you over the line and back into a head coaching role in Suncorp Super Netball? Yeah, I think when that job initially came out, the expression of interest, I was obviously pretty deeply entrenched in my Leeds Rhinos role. However, we're living through a global pandemic, so there was a huge urge to to want to be able to come home. Um, and so I'd stepped down initially from the Northern Ireland job so I could actually go home in the off-season of the Super League to be able to actually see my family for the first time in three years. And once I packed up and left after the Rhino season finished, the job application process and interview process was still unfolding with West Coast Fever. It went for about six months. Uh, it was a really extensive process, which I was incredibly impressed by. Um, and so when I left the UK, I wasn't sure if I was leaving to come back or leaving for good um, because the interview process was still unfolding. But, um, you know, I, I applied for that job knowing that my intention always leaving Australia, going to the UK was to reposition myself to come back when the time was right and at the right place. So I felt great synergy between West Coast fever and my readiness for a return to that level of competition. Um, and because the interview process was so extensive and a number of different steps we had to go through as applicants, it was very much around, is West Coast fever the right place for me? And am I the right coach for West Coast Fever and I loved the process because it was so extensive in that regard there was no question unanswered there was nothing off the table it was very open very transparent very challenging very confronting very honest um, and in the end you know they deemed me as the best choice for the right fit for them and I was very comfortable and very confident that Fever was the right fit for me too so I think that's also another thing too that's a big learning in coaching is that it's not necessarily about the best coach on paper for a team. It's it's what the coach brings for where the team is at. And I always think there's a right place and a right team for a coach and a team to be connected. And sometimes, you know, it's wrong place, wrong time. You're not the right coach for where the team or the club is at. And I just felt like what I could bring to Fever was, you know, really synergized with what the Fever needed or where we could take them and, um, it doesn't always happen like that. So, yeah, really pleased with the process and then obviously very humbled to be given the job, that's for sure. Hey, Dan, I watched with interest the celebrations after you won the grand final and I saw, you know, warm embraces for people like Sue Gordian, who's been head coach at West Coast before. So who's part of Team Dan Ryan when you're, when you're going through that interview process? Are you talking to the club about who's going to be your assistants? Yeah, absolutely. So Sue Gordian's obviously our, our high performance manager and she's heart and soul West Coast fever. And, you know, she's, I, I can't speak more highly enough than, than Gordy. Gordy's one of uh, the most influential people in netball. She's one of my biggest supporters, one of my best critical friends, one of my greatest mentors. She's a bloody good assistant coach as well. But, um, yeah, I've got a photo actually of, of Gordy and I embracing after the grand final and I just love it because <laughs> it's just the investment of that the two of us made on the journey together and she she really I think stuck her neck out to back me in because I think on paper when you look at you know the record of one win and 27 losses who's going to employ a coach that has that record but 
Gordy, being a coach herself, really was able to see beyond the results and have a look at all of the other elements that made up who I was and what I'd done since in my career. And I think when you've got people like that in your corner, they just instill this belief in you that you feel like you can do anything. And she's been a huge influence on me. She's been a great influence on this club. And she stepped in at a really difficult time and um, respect her immensely for what she's done and how she goes about her business. But um yeah, she's certainly someone that's in my corner and always challenging me to be better. And I know that I'm a better coach because of her. And I'm really excited by where we can go together in the future. Yeah, it's uh, why this is one of the best stories in Australian sport, in my opinion. And uh, I've said this before on the podcast with some other guests, but your story could definitely be a Hollywood movie. How, how you go from the record at the Adelaide Thunderbirds to go to the UK to get an opportunity and then back to the West Coast and then... You lead them to the promised land. So we've got to talk about this championship-winning team and who else to start with but the superstar from Jamaica, the greatest goal shooter I think we've seen in the league statistically, Janiel Fowler. Uh, she's just amazing, isn't she? I think I'm, I'm dumbfounded that people want to criticise Janiel for being a tall-holding shooter and disrespecting how amazing she is. She can move exceptionally well. She is so damn strong. The way she shifts weights in the gym, the way she uses her body, she can shoot from anywhere in the circle. She just doesn't need to because she's so good at what she does. Um, she can get it under the post. But I've I've loved building a relationship with, with Janelle and I've loved seeing her develop and evolve across the course of the season. And I think what people also don't understand about Janelle is the sacrifice she makes for her family to come out to Australia every single year is unbelievable she has to watch her daughter Drayana grow up for half of the year via FaceTime she's away from her partner she's away from her extended family as well and I think those sacrifices people people underestimate the impact and toll that that has and if you just imagine what it would be like living away from your 10 11 12 year old for nine months of the year and um, being so far away from home, chasing this dream, you could see how much it meant to Janelle to finally achieve success. And I, I could see in her eyes all year that there was no other option but to win the premiership and for it to all be worth it and to mean something. And, you know, she's grown her game again. I've loved her hunger and thirst for new knowledge and to be challenged. And I just think she's finally got the reward that she's deserved for so, so long. And, um, the sacrifices, you know, she she is she is raising a young daughter that is growing up to believe that she can do anything because her mum can and her mum does. So it's a really it's a really special story, and I think you know I just have so much respect for Janine for what she does and how she goes about her business, and we are so lucky that. Fever is her home away from home. Yeah, beautiful. I think she shoots 58 from 59 in the grand final and plenty of rebounds as well, along with Courtney Bruce, who had six rebounds. What will Janelle do in the future, in your opinion? Well, she's got the hunger to keep playing. She's obviously contracted for next year again. And she said that her body after the grand final, her body had never felt as good <laughs> as what it does right now. So she she is a competitive beast. She is so eager to learn and get better and evolve and do more that I really think she's got a good good few more years in her still if she chooses to play on. So um, I think she can get better. I think she's still got the drive and the determination to do it. And at the end of the day, she loves it and she simply wants to be better than what she is right now. And I think when you're the greatest of all time and you still want to be better, that to me is an absolute champion. So um, I'd like to think Janelle can keep going on, but that'll be up to her, of course. But uh, yeah, that, that the body is holding on really well and there's definitely more in that superstar, I tell you. A dear friend of mine said, you've got to ask this question. So the move from Alice Teague Neal to wing attack, a masterstroke from Dan Ryan. Yeah, I think it was something that really shifted our dynamic and changed our game plan and changed the way we went about our business in that front end. And um, I've loved Alice Teague Neal for a long, long time and how she plays. She is, she is one of the most intelligent players in the game. And while the game is really overtaken these days by the brawn and the power and the muscle, um, she really is that living example that, you know, creativity, craft and brain still have a really important place to play in our game. And um, during the preseason, she was doing some excellent work at goal attack, really developing the skill set there and, and taking a game to a new level. And 
then just through opportunity and some pre-season matches, we sw- swung her into to wing attack and it really shifted the dynamic across that transverse line and made a couple of changes to other people's games as well. And so the move kind of happened a little bit late in the piece in our pre-season. We always knew that it would be an option for us to explore and we weren't sure whether we would roll it out later in the season or whether we would start with it. And in the end, we started with it and she did exceptionally well and really enhanced, I think, the game of Sasha Glasgow at goal attack as well. Those two go hand in hand for me and how well they've developed. So I think Alice at wing attack, it's a natural transition for her. It plays to all her strengths, all her skill sets, and she just has a great ability of being really disciplined, really crafty in how she plays and brings out the best in the others around her. And I think, you know, you look at the grand final, you know, she really brought out the best version of Sasha Glasgow, of Janelle, of Verity Simmons. So um, they're all connected. But, you know, I think I think Alice Teague-Neal's found her new home. And, um, you know, I'm really excited to see how good she can become over the next few years of the wing attack that can swing into goal attack at any time. So, yeah, she's, she's been a revelation for us. There's no question about that. Sasha, it was a grand final for the ages. Uh, what a performance. And a South Australian girl as well. Have you had a long association with her? Yeah, Sasha and I have a really special bond and really connected with Sasha and very proud of the journey she's been on. Uh, Sasha and I often reflect about our time in Adelaide and, you know, while there wasn't many things to celebrate during those years, the highlight for both of us was the day that I told her she was making her debut in the team. Um, and we remember it vividly sitting on the side of the court going, all right, Sasha, you're in the team this week, you're travelling. And then I look down on the game day bench and, all right, Sash, get on the court, goal shooter up against Shani Layton, off you go. So <laughs> um, we, we reflect on that a lot. But to see where she is now and the journey she's gone on and, you know, how settled she is in Perth and it being her home and just how much her game has developed, I think people underestimate how much she's grown this year and the fact that it's the first time in her entire career that she's spent 60 minutes on court at goal attack. So um, it's been quite a significant rise for her. And what I love about Sasha is she's such a student of the game, so eager to learn, analyse, grow, develop. Um, And when she's challenged, just really getting into her head around embracing the challenge. And I thought she was brilliant across the final series for us. And she is such a weapon at the front of Janiel. I know Janiel gets a lot of the accolades for the amount of goals she scores, but the selfless work and the, the threat that Sasha poses in that goal attack spot, I think, was a huge contributing factor to our success this year. So, Dan, I love what you said earlier about chemistry and dynamics. Who drives the culture within the West Coast Fever? Well, my messaging to the group is that we all drive it because this is our team. It's not my team as the head coach. It's not Sue Gordian's team as the general manager. It's not Courtney Bruce's as the captain. It's our team. So we all have a responsibility to contribute on and off the court to the way this team operates, how we interconnect, how we relate, how we communicate. And if your contribution is negative and counterproductive, that's your contribution and you have to own that. But um, on the flip side, if you're bringing great energy, if you're bringing great synergy, if you're diving deep in your conversations, if you're holding people accountable, if you're connected, it's all those types of things that matter. So it's really this philosophy that, Everybody has to show up. Everybody has to play a part. Everybody has a role. And so it's not up to one person to drive it. We're all responsible. And that's that's why we've become a really well-connected team this season. Yeah, I love that too. And uh, Dan, you might know where this question comes from. Uh, you're the first Suncorp Super Netball program to have male training partners. How has that changed the environment? Uh, it's been amazing. I'm sure that that question comes from Ned. That's for sure. She's very proud of her her, her male Australian male players in our environment. But to be honest, I think you know the male netball teams have been involved in the female programs for so long without recognition. And quite often, you know, the head coach will call some of the male players and say, "Hey, can you come and fill in for this practice match?" Very last minute, very ad hoc, and. You know, to be honest, the boys would drop anything in a heartbeat to be a part of a program or to have those opportunities. And so for us here at West Coast Fever, we contract four of our male training partners. They're fully immersed and embedded in the club. They give back to the community space. We support them as well as fully-fledged members of, of our program. And they're in all, all of our training sessions. And I think our, our secret to success this year has been the training environment. And when you've got the caliber of our four male training partners in Jerome, Draven, Dylan and Dan, those four boys bring a standard and an intensity and a ferocity to every single session that challenges our girls all the time. 
that really prepares us for what game day looks like and feels like. And without them, our program would be very different. But um, I love that we've embraced them and that they are really invested and embedded in our club. And it's only the start of some great things to come between our male netball teams here in WA and our male players into what the future looks like here at Fever. So, uh, so thankful to those boys because, you know, those male netballers can contribute enormously to the success of the women's programs. Dan, what does netball look like in WA at the moment? I mean, you must be challenged by the amount of young girls that want to play AFLW. Uh, So what's it like trying to recruit star players? Yeah, I think what West Coast Fever's done really well is created the wider club. So it's not just the Suncorp Super Netball team, but our ANC team, Australian Netball League team, is now the West Coast Fever Reserve. So they are the, the talent pool that then feeds up into Suncorp. And we also have our Futures and Academy systems, which cap- captures our nationally talent ID athletes from the 17s and 19s nationals as well. So within the club infrastructure, we now have a huge talent pool from the under-17s all the way through to the professional ranks, which I think is really important. It's streamlined, it's connected. We're able to monitor the progress of all of those athletes really well. Um, understanding that, you know, the challenges are going to come from sports like AFLW where the salaries increase and the opportunities are far more um, than what netball can provide in terms of numbers. Only 80 contracted positions in Suncorp Super Netball and you're talking a couple of 100 in um, AFLW. So netball needs to make sure it's providing the platform and environment um, for our young girls coming through because certainly going to be challenging the coming years for those other codes. Hey, Dan, I really want to ask you about the coaching fraternity. So since you won the grand final, have you heard from other coaches around the league? Yeah, I've heard from a couple, um, a handful of them, which has been which has been really nice and uh, that, I, that are still coaching at the moment. And then, you know, I've, I've heard a lot from, um, which has been really nice from past Australian players and past players that have been along the journey and other coaches that have been involved um, throughout all my time throughout my career. And I think that's probably one of the most, one of the most nice, nice moments of when you have that ultimate success is who's there sharing it with you and who's there a part of the journey. And um, yeah, certainly heard from some wonderful people over the past couple of weeks that have been a part of the journey and, um, you know, proud of the resilience and all of those types of things along the way. Um, but it's, it's, it is an interesting one. I think when you, when you're at the high performance level, it's, it's competition first and everyone is, is out, out for blood essentially. But, um, you know, it's, it's really lovely when, you know, coaches or players will take, take a moment just to, to send you well wishes or wish you luck or congratulate you on the success. I think, you know, when you can put the competitiveness aside and, you know, human being to human being, I think it's, it's a really nice touch. So it's been lovely hearing from so many people across the course of the journey and through the industry. I watch both football codes every weekend and there seems to be enormous respect among the coaches, even though you're fierce rivals. Uh, speaking of rivalry, would there be a coach or two in the league that you always find hard to go up against and maybe is even surprising tactically against you guys? Oh, good question. Um, because I've kind of just gotten back into it, I think it's it's a little bit uh, a little bit different. And and to be honest, I haven't really spent too much time thinking about what what the others do. Is always having a fair idea of game plan and strategy in the opposition, but not too much around the individual coach. I guess I think for me, I've always loved the challenge of going up against Simone McInnes, though, because of how well drilled and skilled her teams are. And I think. You look at the Melbourne Vixens, who have always been a benchmark team in terms of quality and skill in how they play the game. Um, So I think for me, when you can challenge a team like that, who is known for those basic fundamentals executed better than anybody else, and if you can beat them at that game, I think you're doing some great stuff. So huge respect for Simone, obviously. But every coach in the league, I think, is very good at what they do. And this competition is so even and I think you go into every single game having to play your best respecting the coach the opposition every single player because if you're not at your best you will get absolutely destroyed so I just think Suncorp Super Netball is such a beast of a competition Um, it really is the best of the best so um, full respect to all the teams and all the coaches because you look at this season it's never been as competitive as what it has been this season so significant in terms of uh, how good the game is going at that top level. One of my favourite all-time players at the Swifts and she also won a championship at Adelaide and also won in Brisbane with Queensland Firebirds, Beck Bully. She's the latest coach to be appointed. 
Yeah, really excited for Beck. I, I coached Beck back in the Thunderbirds in the ANZ Champs era. She was our goal defence during some of our golden years. And you could just see it from that that time in her career that she was destined to be a head coach. There is, and everyone says this, there is no one more competitive than Beck Bully, whether you're playing a game of netball or a game of cards or whether you're actually <laughs> walking to the car from the cafe, first one to touch the door, it's probably Beck Bully looking for the win. But uh, no, she she's a competitive beast and I think such a astute coach, knows the game exceptionally well, a great, a great manager of people, uh, and a great communicator. So I think she's going to have a really successful career and, you know, one of the next generation coaches coming through. So certainly looking forward to coaching against Beck because I think she's going to be a wonderful coach and, um, you know, hopefully she has great success along the way. It's, it's it's really exciting to see that new wave of coaches coming through and, yeah, excited to see where she goes. Hey, Dan, we're starting to get the wind-up from our producer, which uh, can you believe that because I've loved the chat today. Got to get your thoughts on the Commonwealth Games. But first, is there... Is there a coach outside of netball in world sport that you've looked to and maybe you've spent some time with to to help you in your role? Oh, it's been really interesting because I don't necessarily have one, but I've certainly gravitated to a lot of different coaches in a lot of different codes. But for me, it's more about their story. And I think probably in recent times, I've really enjoyed um, you know, following the stories of coaches that have had second chances or second opportunities and what they do with them. So, you know, the coaches like Michael Voss in the AFL or Brett Ratton, I've really enjoyed seeing what those coaches do in their second opportunities. You know, I've got a lot of respect for Nolene Taru and what she's achieved in over in New Zealand as well. And I think too, for me, like it's, I, I am very hungry for knowledge and very hungry for new information and wisdom and experiences and it's people's stories that really fascinate me so I read a lot be it athletes coaches I'm a huge I'm a huge advocate for the work of Brene Brown in social science work that she does and um, I just consume as much stuff as I possibly can to really broaden my mindset and challenge my thinking so there wouldn't necessarily be one coach or or one one key person I think it's just gravitating to as many different things as possible so that your own mindset and your own skills are challenged uh, through a diverse level of thinking. Um, and there's so much to learn from other people's stories, which is what I absolutely love. Yeah. Commonwealth Games. So your predecessor at the West Coast Fever will lead the Aussies, Stacey Marenkovic. And do you see us on a collision course with the England Roses at the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham? Yeah, I think that's probably the most the most common occurrence, I think, if, you, if you're predicting something, an Australia-England final. However, there's something telling me that, you know, beware of the Jamaicans and, you know, they do sit in Australia's pool. So I think Australia are going to be really challenged in that that final pool match against against the Sunshine Girls. And you look at the team from Jamaica, this is their best opportunity ever to do something at a major competition with the amount of Suncorp Super Netball athletes they have in their team. And, you know, Rob Wright working with them as well, I think he's going to increase the level of discipline in how they play the game. And, the biggest thing for the Jamaicans is their ability to back up towards the end of a tournament and their discipline, I guess, in the midcourt to be really, really, really uh, consistent and clinical with the ball in hand. So Jamaica are the dark horse for me. I- I'm not sure about New Zealand. I-, I-, I have a very open mind as to what they could do and have great faith and trust that Nolene will do something spectacular come <laughs> competition time. But uh yeah, the safest bet at this point in time would definitely be the Diamonds in England in the gold medal match. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if a boil over or an upset takes place um, in shaking up those rankings. But I think it's just going to be a wonderful competition. Yeah, and Dan, just finally, uh, some of the great coaches, after a grand final, they pretty much go straight back to work and start planning for the following season. How about you, mate? Have you got your feet up at the moment still, uh, you know, enjoying the moment as you should because you led this team to the promised land for the first time in a quarter of a century. Well done, mate. So are you back at the coalface already? Uh, It's a very interesting question because you obviously don't know what it's going to be like post-win and how you're going to feel about everything. But I think that first week after the grand finals, a lot of celebrations, a lot of team commitments and ceremonies and all those types of things. So we really enjoyed the moment together. And then the following week, I think, was physical recovery and everybody's bodies just shutting down from either too much too much beer or basically being on autopilot for the entire season and then just kind of getting completely run down. And um, just, just this week, um, my mind has already shifted into... Um, planning mode for next year and getting really inspired already around what we're going to do and how we're going to do things. And 
I'm really excited by that. I know I'm going to take a bit of a break in September and just finishing off the season reviews over the next next week or two. But yeah, my my passion and drive for next year is already um, starting to bubble to the surface, which is uh, which is terrifying. So um, I'll take a break and refrain for a little little moment and and know that I'll be energized and ready to go again for preseason starting in in November. Yeah, and when they make this Hollywood movie on you, who who plays Dan <laughs> Ryan? Is it Tom Cruise? I mean, we saw I mean, he's a little older than you though. Uh what about Hugh Jackman perhaps, maybe a little taller than you are? Uh who gets yeah, the, who, the the plum role of Dan Ryan? Well, that's a good question, mate. I'll, I'll leave that to the uh to the general public to decide, <laughs> I suppose, but it's look, it's either Hollywood movie or it's um it's a reflection of how fickle the industry is, isn't it? You, you can have great success and you can have great failures in, in a heartbeat. So it's a, it's a tough industry, but um, yeah, certainly very proud of the journey and just love the opportunity to be involved and get to do what I do. So very happy days. And uh, yeah, Tom Cruise probably more so. He's probably more around my height, I'd say, but uh, well, we'll, we'll leave that to the producers, shall we? Yeah, yeah, I like it. And uh, there might be a role for me somewhere in that, sitting courtside when you played the Swifts or the Giants. Hey, um, one final question. Is there anyone or is there any moment that you haven't shared from grand final day that's still just vivid? Maybe it was something a player did during the game. Uh, maybe it was something that happened afterwards. But is there any moment that you haven't shared with, with the public that just sticks out for you and will stay with you forever? Oh, good question. I, I think probably for me was just the feeling in the room before the game. And I think, um, you know, I, I'm very much a person that you know is connected to signs and things happening for a reason and those types of things and my drive into the stadium there were some things that happened along the way I'm like well this is a bit strange this is this is a bit of universe working with us at the moment and when we had our team talk just before we walked out to the grand final you could see in the eyes of every single player that they for the first time truly felt ready for the moment and ready to win and I think sometimes you can hope that you're ready and hope that you can win. But when you truly feel it in your heart of hearts and you can see that in the eyes of every single person in the room, you walk out of that room and you step onto that court and you know that the only thing that's going to happen today is us holding the premiership trophy. We all really felt that and we all believe that in our own way. But that moment of connection with the group before we went out there in our team huddle in the change room, I'll never forget that because... We knew that we were ready, and I think genuinely for the first time, the players believed it was their time and that they were going to do everything they could to ensure that it was their moment, and that's the way it turned out. So a significant moment that we will never, ever forget. Yeah, well done, Dan. I'm giving you a uh, standing ovation here in the uh, the Perfect Ten studios. It It's one of the great sports stories of 2022. Congratulations again to you, the entire West Coast Fever franchise and organisation, everyone involved, their fans as well, on winning for the first time the Suncorp Super Netball Premiership. Well done, mate, and thanks again for being so generous with your time. No worries, mate. Thanks for the support. Really appreciate it. Dan Ryan, Premiership winning coach with the West Coast Fever. Such a pleasure to spend some time with Dan. I met him around about a decade ago and I was immediately impressed and really love what Dan and the entire West Coast team did this year to win their first ever Premiership. By the way, Dan's the second coach to come on the show. Back in 2020, we did a three-part series with Dave Fairley, who was a sensational player, represented New South Wales and Australia, and then transitioned into coaching. And nowadays is coaching referees at the National Rugby League. Speaking of coaches, in the pipeline is Brad Donald. He'll be joining us soon on The Perfect Ten, the head coach of the Australian Women's Rugby League team, the Gillaroos. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Perfect Ten. Thanks again to Dan Ryan. We'll catch you again soon on The Perfect Ten. Perfect 10.